Section 2 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Israel Smolin. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. By G. K. Chesterton. Section 2. The New Legend of Labor by G. K. Chesterton. The present political division into three or perhaps four parties leaves men with my opinions as much isolated as the old division into two. We might have some sympathy with the wee frees if they were in the least worthy to claim with dignity the title given them in derision. I can imagine no nobler title than one which describes a small minority fighting for liberty, and it is typical of the time that it should be regarded as a taunt. But it may be doubted whether these liberals deserve the taunt, and we ourselves have a better right to it. I myself am conspicuously we in the political sense, and I can claim to be considerably more free than they are. Their new war cry for the general election is to boast that they have a Gladstone to direct them in the person of Lord Gladstone, and proceed doubtless to denounce the institution of Lords for its slavish submission to the hereditary principle. Now the two principal things I remember about this new Gladstone are first that he abolished the Habeas Corpus Act by introducing indeterminate imprisonment and second that he ruled in South Africa when English labormen were lawlessly clapped in jail to please the German Jew millionaires. For the rest, coalition is only corruption writ large, and the Labour Party fumbles at the construction of the servile state too feebly to construct anything. There remains the possibility of a labour policy immediately more revolutionary, if ultimately as servile. In other words, there remains what is called Bolshevism, and its chances seem worthy of a brief consideration. I have made some notes in this column from time to time recently, and I may possibly make some more, touching the real errors of Bolshevism. I do it partly because I really think that the errors of Bolshevism are doing a great deal of harm. I do it even more because I think that the errors of anti-Bolshevism are doing even more harm. If this sort of socialism prevails, it will be almost entirely through having been resisted in the wrong way. Indeed, this was undoubtedly the case with the milder socialism of a generation before. Fabianism became a fashion, largely through the genius of Mr. Bernard Shaw and the science of Mr. Sidney Webb, but even more through the stupidity of the critics of Mr. Shaw and the ignorance of the critics of Mr. Webb. Bernard Shaw was represented as a rather naughtier and more risque sort of Dan Leno. As the natural result, anybody who discovered that he was really trying to tell the truth jumped to the premature conclusion that it was the truth that he was telling. The moderates in the county council suggested that Sidney Webb was a sans culotte, ready to kill with the guillotine and die on the barricade. The consequence was that, when people found that Webb was much more moderate than the moderates, they too hastily inferred that he must be much more right than the moderates. You cannot more completely acquit a man of the crimes that are really his own than by convicting him of the crimes that are contrary to his own. 
It would be a lucky thing for the Kaiser if a Prussian military court broke his sword and tore off his epaulets and degraded him as a conchi and a coward who refused to make war on Europe. It would have been a lucky thing for Lord Clanricard if his family had put him in an asylum as unfit to manage his estates, owing to his reckless charity to the poor and quixotic tenderness for his tenants. And it was a lucky thing for the socialists that people denounced them as anarchists and predicted that they would tear us in pieces with their anarchy. The result was that, ten years afterwards, we woke up to find ourselves bound hand and foot by their bureaucracy. For the moment, however, I would leave this latter and larger matter for the right answer to socialism, and pause upon a parenthesis touching the former point, the question of whether the thing itself has at the moment any chance of spreading. It certainly has not anything like the chance it had in the first days of the Fabian movement, but there are some elements in the modern mood which work in its favor. There is a state of mind to which it is largely welcome. I only indulge here in the digression of a vague description of that mental state. First of all, socialism, which twenty years ago had entered philosophy, has now certainly entered history. In the moment a thing enters history, it enters legend. Marx, like Mohammed, has now something more than a cause. He has also an effect. And there are some to whom any effect is effective. They are the sort who propose to ladies who have been in the dock for murder. In some ways, the legend of Marx is rather like the legend of Darwin. In each case, a certain personality invented a certain theory in support of a certain cause. In each case, the three things have been reversed. First, the theory has become more important than the cause, and then the personality has become more important even than the theory. The general idea of evolution is much older than Darwin. The general idea of socialism is much older than Marx. But the curious thing is that men began to think more of Darwinism than of evolution, and actually went on to think more of Darwin than of Darwinism. In the same way, men seem to be prouder of being Marxians and of being socialists, and then to be not so much even Marxians as rather adorers of Marx. The Darwinian and Marxian controversies became personal questions. It was strange, for they were not only impersonal ideas, but ideas directed to the depression of personality. The biologists who taught that things only changed with evolutionary slowness also taught that with Darwin everything had changed with revolutionary abruptness. The economic historians who taught that the individual man could alter nothing also taught that the individual Marx had altered everything. The magic of the spirit of man was too strong for all this degrading dullness, and even their materialism was ennobled into a myth. Darwin not only has a statue, but a shrine. And if you discuss his theory in a rationalistic spirit in the presence of men about 60 years old, you will soon find out that he was not only the hero of a romance, but the founder of a religion. The whole point of his process was that it eliminated personality, and the only result of it is that thousands worship the personality who have not the faintest notion of the process. In exactly the same way, while the Marxian philosophy is confessedly concerned with discrediting the heroic idea and history, it has only spread in the form of hero worship. 
We all remember Mr. H.G. Wells' very humorous account of the ubiquity of the big and bushy beard of Karl Marx in the pictures, statues, and decorations of Bolshevist Russia. Such a multiplication of images is a part of mysticism and even of mythology. These are the new icons of holy Russia. So one might have seen on every side, painted flat and embossed halos of gold, the beard of St. Nicholas or the beard of St. Andrew. Even the Muslims, if they were also Marxians, though they might still be forbidden to have such visible portraits, could invoke Marx as well as Mohammed in words of an ancient imagery, swearing by the beard of the prophet. In arguing with a the Marxian, therefore, the first thing one has to deal with is Marx simply as a name of power like Muhammad. Along with Muhammad goes the Quran. Along with the image of the man goes the image of the book. Not that it be understood the book itself. Nothing has had so much terrible and transcendental power over men as something written which they have not read. There is no book like the sealed book. The Bible plays that part for many. For others the Quran, for others the origin of species, for others the capital of Karl Marx. To this extent we may say that such popularity as Bolshevism ever has obtained, or ever can obtain, in Russia or elsewhere, is due to the very elements which Bolshevists generally affect to despise, and that they prevail in practice through the things that they reject in theory. They prevail by the legend, by the ritual, by the religious emblem, and the oral tradition. This sort of romance is necessarily somewhat akin to rumor, and to a rumor that spreads outwards from one man to many. One man kills a gigantic bear, and twenty men tell the story around the campfires. One warrior slays a great king in battle, and a hundred minstrels sing of the deed of arms as they wander through the cities of the world. And just as in a prehistoric tribe or a Greek city or a medieval village, a multitude would repeat that there was once a man who slew twenty men, or fasted for fifty days, or swam some incredible distance, or bore some unspeakable tortures. So there will be current in socialist circles in a modern city the indestructible tradition that there was once a Marxian who had read the works of Marx. But when we come to this inner ring of the original heroes who have read the book or made a bold and adventurous attempt to read the book, we come upon a somewhat different psychological problem. The essential psychological problem of our people today is that they are starved for lack of something which has been normal to the nations of the earth, a religion. Religion has its artistic and its scientific side, its popular and its specialist side. And just as the mere rumor of the reputations of Darwin or Marx inadequately supplies the place of legend, so for the initiated the mere existence of a theory inadequately supplied the place of a theology. And of them we may truly say that the Marxian system was satisfactory, not because it was a good system or a wise system, but simply because it was a system. There is something extraordinarily fascinating, especially to the bewildered people of a vague and transitional time, about any explanation of anything. But for some attempt at a description of this rather interesting state of mind, I must find space in another article. End of section 2